0: Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians Corinthians in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hand this morning so you can read the Word of God and then hear it as well. And please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everyone to own a Bible. Please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these three verses. Thank You that they and the truth that is contained in them will outlive the heavens and the earth. This is the truth, Lord, about salvation, about our need for salvation. And we thank You for Your directness, Your clarity. We need clarity always in all issues in life. But, Lord, we cannot... have an uncertain trumpet or signal related to our salvation. And we thank You, Lord, that You make things simple and You make things clear. And, Lord, we pray that You'd speak to us by Your Holy Spirit through Your Word. We long to hear Your voice. We've heard so many voices this week. So many things have been said, Lord so many lies and half lies as we've watched the news or listened to talk radio or gone about our business at work and school. And Lord, we thank you that we can turn to your book, Always for the Truth. Speak the truth to us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, thanking you, Lord, for your love for each one of us. Amen please be seated. The Christians at the church in Corinth were suing one another in the courts before unsaved judges, and as a result of that, they were not only marring their own Christian witness within the city, but they were dragging the reputation of the Lord through the mud before the unsaved world. And Paul told them that they were fully qualified as Christians, as members of the kingdom of God, fully qualified to be able to solve their disputes as citizens of the kingdom of God without going before unsaved judges. And as he speaks in this chapter about the great gulf that exists between the saved and the unsaved, talking about as wonderful as a judge might be in many, many respects, educated, um, able to apply the law, but if he is not born again or she is not born again by the Holy Spirit, there's a great gulf between what that person knows and understands and what the simplest Christian that lives in the simplest circumstances in the world knows and understands every single day by virtue of being born again and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's in the the context of all of this that Paul then addresses a great deception that both non-Christians and Christians alike are prone to, a lie that is told by many, it is believed by many, concerning the one thing that we cannot afford to be lied to about or to believe a lie about And that is having to do with our salvation and having to do with our eternity. the Holy Spirit declares in verse 9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is another way of saying that the unrighteous are not saved. They have deliberately chosen not to become citizens of the kingdom of God for the simple reason that they don't want Him as their king. And they don't like His laws, so they don't want to be as a part of His kingdom to live under His headship and to live in line with with His laws. So they don't want anything to do with the kingdom of God. And they want to live by their own rules, they want to live by their own laws or the rules of the devil or the rules of the world or the rules of man's wisdom or the rules that are based upon the very, very lax nature of sin. And the Bible teaches that God has provided mankind with an alternative to the moral and the spiritual and the practical darkness of this world. And a great expense to Himself, the offering of His Son upon that cross, He has provided mankind with an opportunity to access the kingdom of God. He has produced out of nothing this thing called the kingdom of God. Before the kingdom of God, there was only the kingdom of man, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin. There's no alternative, independent of God, no alternative place to go to than that kingdom. And God has supplied you and me and the whole world with a kingdom of God, an opportunity to be come under his headship to come under his rules to come under his loving law and to escape the one kingdom and come into a kingdom that is filled with love and filled with light and filled with truth and all of this moving from one kingdom to another it all occurs when a person is willing to repent of their sin and of their self-will put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and then enter into the kingdom of God. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and he said, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And how wonderful it is to know that if you sit here today and you say to yourself, I'm tired of the life that I'm living, I'm tired of the hopelessness of my life, I'm tired of the joylessness of my life, I'm tired of the darkness of my life, the limitations of my life. I've lived all of my life with the sense that there must be something more to life than what I have experienced. And I still have the sense that I'm as far away from that as I was when I was eight years old. And a person can say to God, God, I want to exchange my citizenship in this sin-dominated and joyless and hopeless kingdom that I'm a part of right now for citizenship in the kingdom of God. I want you to be my king. I want you to rule my life. I want to live the life that you have for me. And it can happen. And how does it happen? Jesus said it happens this way. He said, God so loved the world, that's you. That He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus, to die on that cross. That whosoever, that's you again, would believe or trust in Him, in Jesus, that you will not perish but have everlasting life. And the greatest miracle that can occur in a human life a greater miracle than being raised from the dead or being cured of some kind of a disease. The greatest miracle that can occur in a human life is when we surrender ourselves to God, put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, because at that moment, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit then comes into our life to now live the life of Christ in us and through us. And that miracle will occur all over the world today, just as it's occurred all through human history. Somebody might say, is it that simple? I can move from this kingdom of darkness and bondage, this kingdom that is now, it's taken me 30 years or 35 years or 40 years or 60 years for me to see it as the feeble and the dark and the terrible thing that it is to now long for another kingdom. But can it be that simple that just by putting my faith in Jesus I can move from something as hopeless and as dark as that into something as wonderful as the kingdom of God? And it is that simple. And the reason that it's simple is because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting related to our salvation. He's done all of the lifting. Because of His death upon the cross and His unique qualifications as the Son of God and dying upon that cross, He has made it possible for God to offer salvation to us as a free gift. You don't have to climb the Himalayas. You don't have to hitchhike across the country. You don't have to do anything except just receive this gift of everlasting life from God that then moves you from one kingdom into the other. Somebody says, I'd like to do it, but I don't deserve it. Join the crowd. None of us deserves it. And the fact that you recognize that you don't deserve it will make you an even greater lover of Jesus than the person that doesn't recognize that. Jesus said, he who's been forgiven much loves much. That is, has a consciousness of how much we've been forgiven. And it will turn you into a great worshiper and lover of God. Jesus said, anyone that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. God loves to save people and forgive people. And he longs to save every person. The Bible says that God isn't willing that a single person would perish, but that all would come to repentance. If God had His will, not a single person would ever end up in eternal judgment or in hell. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But He won't force anyone into His kingdom. A person has to make that choice for themselves. You notice the example of the practices of unrighteousness that Paul lists for us here in verses 9 and 10. And the list isn't exhaustive. He just lists the kind of sins that marked major cities like Corinth and the ancient world and the kind of sins that mark major metropolitan areas and cities of the world today. He speaks of the fact that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. And fornication is sexual immorality or sexual intercourse by a single person outside of the institution of marriage. And God just says in His book right here, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. He then goes on to speak about idolaters, which is kind of odd where it fits into the list because He talks about adultery next. He talks about Um, homosexuality. He talks about sodomy next. And so there's this whole collection of sexual sins that he's listing here, heterosexual, homosexual sins. He lists all of them here. And then idolatry is kind of plugged into this place. And you say, what's the deal here related to that? Well, in the ancient world, almost all idolatry, the worship of the false gods in those days involved license related to Uh, sexual uh, immorality. Corinth was a classic example of that. At Corinth they had the temple of Aphrodite who was the uh, goddess of love or really the goddess of lust. And the priests of the temple of Aphrodite had 10,000. 10,000? Think of that. How long would it take you to count to 10,000? 10,000 temple prostitutes associated with the, the temple of Aphrodite just in Corinth alone. And they were boys and girls and men and women, and they would go out and they could be hired then for sexual uh, uh, expression and immorality. And then these men and women and boys and girls would bring the money back into the temple. It would support the the priests and the temple there. And then the people that would then pay the money in order to be with these uh, 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 temple prostitutes, they would then look and say, I have engaged in this sexual immorality as an act of worship toward Aphrodite, and then I give this money then to the support of Aphrodite. You can always trust, anytime you've got a religion, anytime you've got a religion that's based on sexual immorality or encourages a lackness related to sexual purity, you know men have got their hands on that. You know how it has its origin in man and not in God. And so here is this recognition in the ancient world. And it's like, okay, we know that these sexual sins, all of them are wrong but we want to ease our conscience related to it. We don't want to be convicted related to the fact that I'm engaged in fornication or adultery or sodomy or whatever it might be. And so what's the best way to silence the conscience? Let's create a God that allows us to then freely express our worship toward that God in this way in order to then sanctify sexual immorality. And that's what they did in the ancient world. And so he speaks of the immorality here. And then he talks about adulterers. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God in verse 9. Sexual immorality uh, with a a married person being sexually involved with someone who's not their spouse. He mentions homosexuals in verse 9. And the word homosexual that's used there in verse 9, it refers to the uh, passive or the effeminate a partner in a homosexual relationship. And then he mentions uh, sodomites not inheriting the kingdom of God. That refers to the more active or the dominant partner in a relationship. When you see uh, two lesbians or you see two homosexual men, and they are together, you typically look at that and you say, okay, which is the man and which is the woman here? One is a dominant and one is a passive in the relationship. One is representing the male and and the female, so to speak, in that. And here Paul writes that whatever side of, of, of homosexual immorality as well as heterosexual immorality, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he mentions thieves. Thieves can be offended. Say, so put me in this company, but <clears throat> they're mentioned here. Those who steal what doesn't belong to them. Covetous will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 10. Those who are greedy for gain, that's the master passion of their life. That's the thing that keeps them from ever putting their faith in Christ. Drunkards, and a drunkard is simply one who gets drunk. I'm here to give you clarity on these issues and definitions we can all understand revilers. And revilers are people who are verbally abusive. They're verbally violent. You can be very violent with your mouth. And so revilers are the kind of people who verbally abuse people. They slander people. They harm people. They lie about people. And this goes on all of the time in politics and beyond. It's, it's terrible. But revilers and then extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God verse 10, these are swindlers or robbers. These are people who take advantage of people who are disadvantaged or powerless, or they've been put in a place in life where their circumstances are difficult, they're vulnerable. And this kind of person comes in, takes advantage of their vulnerability to then separate them from what little money they do have, then to enrich themselves. Now, I think it's very important to realize that this is not saying that if you are a Christian and you commit one of these or any other sin that you've lost your salvation and you need to be resaved again. No Christian is perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. We don't use that as an excuse to say, well, no Christian is perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. And so I'm going to live a sinful life. We don't use that as an occasion to sin, but we do face facts. And it's important to realize that, that if you're looking to become a Christian based upon finding a perfect Christian, there was only one perfect Christian, and that was Jesus. The rest of us all fall short on a daily basis of living a life that's exactly like Christ. And that's why when his disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he said, pray after this manner." forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He said also, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, it's a daily prayer, and in that daily prayer is the confessing of sin and asking God for for the forgiveness of sin because we all fall short of being like Christ on a daily basis. This is talking about people who deliberately and habitually and actively willfully commit these sins as a lifestyle. And such a person, Paul says, reveals themselves to be unsaved, that they are not a part of the kingdom of God. It is impossible for God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life at the moment of a genuine salvation and for that life not to change, for that person to remain the same person that they were before giving their life to Christ afterwards. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. He will change our lives when we are truly born again. A Christian will never be able to just casually live a life of sin without any conviction that it's wrong and that they need to repent of their sin and stop committing that sin. I think we've all as Christians experienced God's conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit like that. How many of you know God has a doghouse? I've been in it. He has a stool in a corner. I've sat on it. When we do something wrong, the Lord knows how to get our attention. And... God keeps me on a choke chain. I, can't, I feel like I can't get away with anything. Not that I'm trying. But I mean, I, I do something and it's real quick. I get this sense, all right, Lord, I don't know what happened in that last conversation or what just happened or what. All I know is that I'm out of sorts with you right now. Something happened. What did I do here? And then to seek Him related to that, get that situated and, and then return to a relationship with the Lord that's straight and, and is, is current and, and vital and alive. But the Lord, no Christian can engage in sin without that activity of the Holy Spirit going on in their life. And the person who lives a lifestyle of sin without any conviction uh, of that sin is merely revealing they've never been born again by the Holy Spirit. If you're, not a, if you're here today and you are not yet a Christian, it's very important for you to realize that nobody ends up in hell because of any of these sins. It's not going to be like one day in hell and people say, well, what are you here for? Fornication. Ah. Uh, what are you here for? Adultery. Mm-hmm. What are you in the big house for? A thief. How about you? A reviler. There won't be any conversation like that that goes on in hell. Nobody ultimately ends up in eternal judgment in hell on the basis of any of those sins because those, any of those sins and indeed every single sin that we could ever commit, all of them can be forgiven by putting my trust in Jesus. The only reason a person ends up in hell for eternity is because they've rejected the salvation and the forgiveness that's found in Christ. And that is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. Nobody goes to hell because of those sins. They end up in hell because they have refused the Savior that's been sent to us to provide us were the forgiveness of all of those sins. To practice those sins merely reveals the fact that I have never truly put my faith and my trust in Christ. Now, they're just symptoms of the larger problem. I guess we could put it that way. Now, we've brought up the subject of hell, and so I want to talk about that for a moment. Sometimes people will reject the God of the Bible or they'll reject the Bible and they'll protest concerning the God of the Bible and say, I believe that God is a loving God. I could never believe in a God who would ever uh, send people into judgment or into hell. And so they dismiss uh, God completely, the God of the Bible, and they say that because he would do such a thing that he can't be a loving God and so they reject him. But the fact of the matter is, is that God, in an essential sense, He never really sends anyone to hell, but He does confirm our reservations that we make for hell, for heaven or hell. And each and every one of us in this life, based on what we do with Christ, we are establishing our own reservations for whether we will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. And at the moment of death, those reservations are confirmed and God simply uh, adheres to our decision in this life for where it is that we're going to spend eternity. John wrote in his first epistle, he said, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, speaking of eternal life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now that's just as simple and as clear as God can make things. The Bible teaches that the complete forgiveness of sins, the washing away of my sin, the cleansing from sin comes From Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross and his death upon the cross alone. Someone says, Well, what makes Jesus so special that I ought to put my faith in him as opposed to anybody else in human history for the forgiveness of my sins? Well, the Bible declares that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. You see, God is a loving God. One of the shortest verses in the Bible contains a passage that says, God is love. That's God's self-description, that He is love. God is love. And so God is loving, but He is also out of that love just and holy and righteous "...no one is truly loving who is not just and holy and righteous." So it's not like the one excludes the other. He is both loving and holy and just. And God doesn't have like a splintered personality or some ability to compartmentalize in His mind, His nature. He is all of those things at once." To be, for him to be both holy and just is never at the expense of his love. It's always an expression of his love. But our thinking about love, as well as our thinking about everything virtually today in the culture, is so shallow. It's so superficial. It goes, these things get said by people like, I won't believe in a God of love who would judge anyone as if these are mutually exclusive things because nobody thinks about anything in a deep way any longer. We think about one inch deep on even the issues that have to do with God and have to do with everlasting life. And so these things aren't mutually exclusive at, at at all, you can be loving and be just and be righteous and be holy. And indeed, you couldn't be loving if you weren't that. The word propitiation comes from the it carries the idea of a satisfying payment, and it was used in the ancient times to refer to the act of appeasing another person's anger or their wrath by offering them a gift. Or a sacrifice, and as it relates to our Jesus sacrifice for our sins, it is only His sacrifice that makes the full and satisfying payment that is required for the forgiveness of our sins. It is only his sacrifice that makes it consistent for God to pardon us of our sin. It is only His sacrifice that satisfies God the Father, that satisfies the righteous and holy requirements of heaven. It is only Jesus' sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God toward our sin, the wrath that if He did not have toward our sin, He would not be holy and He would not be loving. And God's wrath... Our sin is real. He wouldn't be a holy God if He was indifferent to sin. And in the words of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, it is Jesus' death upon the cross alone that allows God to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. to remain holy and righteous and still express His love and the salvation of mankind. And as much as God loves man and as much as God loves you and as much as He longs to have a personal relationship with you and to one day bring you with Him into the glory of heaven, He cannot ignore the seriousness of our sin and the very real consequences of our sin. If He did, He would be unrighteous. And so what is the solution? to that dilemma, and there is only one solution. He was able to do it through the death of His Son, the Son of God, Jesus, upon the cross of Calvary, for it is there that He provided a way for Jesus' righteousness to be put to our account, giving us the perfect righteousness that heaven requires, and yet at the same time, not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of sin. No one can look at Jesus in their mind's eye upon that cross covered with the spit of man, covered with his own blood, and ever come to the conclusion that the God that would allow this to happen for the forgiveness of our sins has a lax attitude related to sin or considers sin to be no big deal. We will spend all of eternity trying to even scratched the surface in terms of an appreciation for the fact that it required the death of the very Son of God in order for us to be forgiven of our sins, and that that is how serious every sin that we commit is in our lives. It is only the salvation provided as a result of Jesus' death on the cross that allows Him to remain just and be the justifier of sinful man. And it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly righteous and holy God to save ungodly sinners and remain just in doing so. Because on the cross, the penalty of our sin was not just casually dismissed as no big deal, Jesus bore the penalty that our sin deserved on that cross. He bore the wrath of God that your sin and my sin deserved upon that cross. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, until you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the wrath of God hangs over your life and over your sin. God loves you in a way that no human lips could ever, ever describe. So He gave you a picture He gave you a moment in human history to communicate the greatness of His love for you. And that's the death of His Son upon that cross. God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He loves you. He wants to save you, but He cannot ignore your sin. And He cannot ignore... The seriousness of sin. You must receive His forgiveness, His way, and it is only through Christ that allows Him to save you in a way that satisfies His righteous anger towards sin. That only happens through faith in Christ. And it's the failure of our culture to view sin as something that's serious that keeps people from thinking about how serious their sin is to God? Who takes sin seriously anymore? Who takes laws seriously increasingly anymore? And so what does the world do? The world doesn't like words like fornication or adultery or sodomy or homosexuality or thieves or extortioners or revilers, because those kind of terms bring conviction to our lives. Those are terms that make a person realize that what I'm doing here is wrong. And so the culture doesn't want anybody to be convicted of their sin. The culture works day and night to keep you and me from ever coming into contact with even the slightest feeling that the sin that we commit day in and day out is serious, related to ourselves or anyone else, and, and even related to God. And so, what does the culture do? The culture renames the sin in order to take the stigma off of the sin, to remove the shame from the sin. And you see what the world has done, even with a list of the sins that are in verses 9 and 10. Fornication is no longer fornication, it's called living together. Well, that's nicer, isn't it? Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Listen, here's my boyfriend, and we're fornicators you can't say that without there being deep conviction of the fact that it's it's wrong this is my boyfriend and we're living together ah that takes the sting away from it except god still sees it the same way however the culture sees it so adultery is now an affair how different can, what can you think of two different words that are words that are more different I mean, one has something that speaks strong about the strength of that sin and the other is almost like, you know, you've gone to see the Eiffel Tower in Paris or something and flown back. Homosexuality is the gay lifestyle. Everything gets renamed in order to take the negative stigma off of sin. But there's one big problem with man's attempt at self-deception concerning the seriousness of sin, and that is all that really matters is what does God think of sin? Because one day all of us are going to stand before the Lord, the Bible says. And then all of this indoctrination, all of this group think, all of this herd mentality, all of this uh, brainwashing, all of this shallow thinking is going to disappear in a moment. And I'm going to stand before the God who created the heavens and the earth and created me and created uh, how life was intended to live and every sin that I've ever committed against myself or against other people was ultimately uh, committed against him. And then that day, all that's going to matter is what does he think of my sin? I just want to plead with you. If you don't know the Lord, if I could stand on my head on the corner of this pulpit to make the point, I would do it. To please stop and think about how serious sin is and how important it is that you be forgiven of your sins and receive everlasting life. The world that we live in, sometimes, and what I want to do in this sermon right now, in this point of the sermon, I want to do such a massive pushback against the indoctrination. It's all a lie. It's a lie that sin doesn't matter. It's a lie that God doesn't exist. It's a lie that says that I'm not one day going to need to answer to Him. It is all a lie. And to believe the lie is to believe the very worst lie that a person can believe because it will affect my eternity. Sin is a big deal. The wrath of God rests upon sin. He wants to forgive it, but He can only forgive it in His Son. And those of you who don't know the Lord, I want you to know that. Everybody has a right to know that. Everybody has a right to hear from God that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God, not because so many Christians that are now Christians today don't know what fornication is and weren't saved out of that sin, but just to make us realize that a lifestyle of sin reveals that we are not a part of the kingdom of God yet, and we need to become a part of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. God has given you a conscience. It comes from God. And the fact that you have a conscience that defines for you right and wrong, everyone has a conscience, And everyone lives below their conscience. Every single human being does. And why do we possess a conscience that has a higher standard? Our conscience has a higher standard than our actual practice. It's an evidence of the fact that that conscience has come from God. God. It doesn't have its origin in us. It has its origin in God in order that when we sin, we would be convicted of our sin, have that sense that there's something wrong. I'm doing something wrong here. This is something that shouldn't be a part of my life. I need to be forgiven of this, and I need to get out of this kingdom into a new kingdom. Don't buy this idea. That sin isn't serious business. It is very serious business. And this passage is intended to push back at the culture of Corinth. And this sermon is intended to push back at the culture that we live in. That tells people and comforts people in their sin. Redefines their sin. Even tells people that it's okay with God. Even with the God of the Bible. even if it means it keeps people in a kingdom that is going to ultimately put them in a place of judgment and rob them from becoming a part of the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul warns the church at Corinth against deception on this issue. And he says it in verse 9, don't be deceived. The unsaved, you don't know Christ yet. Don't be deceived. That to make a lifestyle of these sins and still think that you're going to heaven. You're not going to heaven. And who's going to tell you that but God? Everybody else is going to save their own neck. They're going to save their own skin. They're not going to harm the relationship. They don't want to incur your wrath. They don't want to hurt your feelings. God steps up and says, I will say what no one else will say. Why? Because I love you like nobody else loves you. Don't be deceived. You cannot live a lifestyle of sin and then have any idea that one day you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And this deception is widespread. I could give you so many examples of this, but my mind always goes back to the very first one. You remember the first time on so many things in life. The church first started almost 30 years ago. Back in those days, I would drive to Merced to do a midweek Bible study there as well. Wonderful people were in Merced. A great group would come out in the midweek Bible study, and we'd learn the Bible together. And one day, part of the Bible study, I mentioned this sin of fornication. I don't know why or what passage we were dealing with. And the fact that fornicators would not inherit the kingdom of God, and that's what God's Word had to say. Immediately after the study, two young ladies made a beeline for me right to the front. They're carrying Bibles, big, thick Bibles. They had pens. They had pads. They were serious in that Bible study about learning the Word of God. But they came up to me and got in my face, and how dare I tell them that they were not going to inherit the kingdom of God because both of them were living with their boyfriends? I said, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you what God says. And here they are, the whole outward everything and the whole thing. And in their mind, they are absolutely livid with me. And worse, they are absolutely convinced that there was nothing wrong with what they were doing and that their sin was not an indication of the fact that they had never been truly born again and needed to be born again, which I urged them to do. I never saw them again. And I hope I see them one day in heaven. This is prevalent. The number of people who live a willful, deliberate, habitual practice of sin and are convinced that they are going to one day get into heaven rather than realizing that that habitual practice of sin ought to be examined very closely for whether that person has truly been born again by the Holy Spirit. And it's not just those that are unsaved that don't need to, be, need to be careful about not being deceived related to this kind of thing, but it's Christians as well. You know what the first word out of Jesus' mouth was in his public ministry? Love. No, it wasn't. The first word out of his mouth expressed love, true love but it wasn't the word love. The first word out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry was the word repent. And the word repent means to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction in my life. To have a change of mind about the path I'm on in life and where it is taking me and then to get off of that path, the kingdom of darkness, and to put myself on the path of the kingdom of light. And when Jesus called people to repent, he, it again, the difference of the culture, how different this culture thinks versus how God thinks, but in the mind of the average person, the culture is winning in terms of how people think about things. Jesus never would have dreamt in a million years that when He called people to repent that he was doing something unloving or something terrible, the call to repent on the part of Jesus was the offering of a gift, repentance is a privilege when you are on a path that is dark and hopeless and sin-filled and sin-dominated in and bondage and you hear about another kingdom and someone tells you of the stature of Jesus, the unique stature of Jesus, that, hey... You can get out of that kingdom and come into my kingdom and this kingdom will take you in a completely different direction and a different quality of life, not just in this life, but the life to come. How in the world does the world then get away with making repentance a bad word? Because we're shallow in our thinking and we allow other people to do our thinking for us rather than thinking for ourselves. It's a privilege to repent. It's a privilege to become a part of the kingdom of God. Christians have to be careful of this deception as well. Sometimes Christians begin to cave on these issues. They won't declare these truths because they're unpopular. Even leaders in churches now This passage would have been avoided like the plague. And so many Christians believe about their family members and about their neighbors and about everyone in life that they're all going to heaven no matter what kind of a life that they live. Well, no wonder we don't invite them to the Harvest Crusade if we believe that. I'd like to believe that. I'd like to not have paid the price I've paid personally in my own family and among my own friends and in my own life that I have paid by being clear about how to be saved. I'd like a vacation from it. I get tired of swimming against the stream of the culture and the thought and the indoctrination even within the body of Christ. I get tired of it too and just want to be able to say, all right, everybody's getting in. Everybody's nice people. I just don't need the aggravation and the fight and all. But here's the thing that keeps me from doing it. Somebody told me the truth. And I could never live with myself. I am a debtor to that. I couldn't look myself in the mirror if someone told me the truth that put me, pointed me in the direction of how to be saved and leave the life that I was once living for the life that I have the privilege of living now and then to shut my mouth up and not tell other people about it, or worse yet, to comfort people who I know are not on the way to heaven but think they are, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But the deception is so great. Oh, my daughter, my son, my husband, my wife, my father, my mother, they're going to heaven. I know he just drinks himself You know, unconscious every single night, and and hates God, and doesn't want me to talk about the Bible. But you know, I think he's saved. I I think that right in there's just a little (laughs) spine. Don't be deceived; otherwise, you'll stop praying for him, and you'll stop sharing with them, and they need to hear the truth. And you notice, and we close with this, in contrast to all of this, Paul declares concerning Christians, even the Christians in Corinth, he says, and such were some of you. Some of the Christians in Corinth have been guilty of these sins. Not all all people become Christians out of the list of these sins. Some people become Christians out of a religious background. They were raised in a religious background that did not teach the most fundamental truth in the Bible from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 3 that you must be born again or you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they hear that message, they come from a religious background, they come from a moral background, but they realize they're still a sinner, they need to be saved, and they become saved. And then others, and I don't know what percentage it is in the body of Christ even today, but some, maybe most, are saved out of kind of a self-willed life of the kind of sins that are listed here in verses 9 and 10 and so many other sins that could be uh, added to it. And the proof of the power of the gospel is that it's able to take people like these in Corinth in the context of just absolute, you know, indescribable sin that was going on and to take these people who were fully lost in their sins and to make them into a new creation. That's a miracle that God does. If any man be in Christ, the Bible says, old things are passed away, behold... All things have become new. We've become a new creation. I'm a new creation. I know I'm a new creation. I know there's no other explanation for my life except for the miracle of spiritual birth and that God has come into my life by His Holy Spirit. This is not psychosomatic. This is not mind over matter. This is not positive thinking. The things that have happened in my life, the changes that occurred, they're completely a God thing. That's your testimony and your witness as well. And what we are now as Christians, Paul says, is that we have been washed, but you were washed, past tense. We've been washed from our sin through the sacrifice of Christ, completely forgiven and cleansed. He said, but you were sanctified, set apart, made holy, set apart for God's use, no longer for the world and the devil's use, and then justified you were justified. In other words, declared righteous by God because of Jesus's work upon the cross. And justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees us as Christians because of our faith in Christ. He looks at us. He sees the righteousness of Christ put to our account. And he says that one's righteousness is just as if they'd never sinned. And that's how God sees us. And how does it happen? And the name, he said, of the Lord Jesus based upon what he's done for us on the cross and by the Spirit of God as a result of that spiritual birth when we put our faith in Christ and God comes into our lives. And I think "were" is a wonderful word in that passage that we used to be that, but we are not that anymore. We were engaged in all of these other kind of sins, or this kind of thing, but now we are washed, and we are sanctified, and we are justified. That's who and what you are as a Christian. You are washed, and you are sanctified, and you are justified. That's our identity. That's the miracle that God does. Some years ago, what is it? It's not a blog, but where you go online and there's like this conversation that goes on and there's a bunch of people that are on it and they go back and forth. What do you call that? Confusing. What is it? Is it <laughs> okay, I didn't hear. Okay, so you got one of these things where they're talking like that. <laughs> you, you all know the word, and then, so then not track with me on it. So they got this thing going on, and, and the thing is made up of pastors. And, and then somebody brings up about what about a Christian who's been saved out of a particular lifestyle of sin, and it's one of the sins that are lifted in our passage. And somebody chimes in and says, "Well, I know they can be saved. But there are entire areas of the ministry at our church they'd never be able to serve in." And somebody chimes in and says, "Yeah, but what about the fact that God says that when we're saved, we're made a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, everything is made new. And that position based upon the Bible ended up in just a few short minutes just kind of being trampled by my estimation two or three bullies that were on that chat. And it infuriated me. It infuriated me. Every single Christian, that word were is used four times in the passage. Every one of us as Christians have been washed and we have been sanctified and we have been justified on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And who am I to allow God to make my life the miracle that it is and to say, yes, he, he can make people that come out of my particular sin into a new creation, but He won't make people come out of that sin into a new creation. God is greater by His Holy Spirit than any sin we have committed our lives to. And the forgiveness of Christ is greater than any sin that we have committed our lives to. Don't believe what your own mind says to you as a Christian or what other people tell you or what the ologists tell you or even what is believed by Christians. You are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified. That is our identity in Christ. And because that is our identity, the passage must be allowed to just search us this morning for anything of this list in verses 9 and 10 or any other list of sin that's found in the Bible that we have allowed to be reintroduced back into our lives that are far below that standard of washed and sanctified and justified And I want the passage to do that this morning in our lives as Christians. To take and look and say, whatever I believe or whatever people are telling me or whatever is popular in the culture or whatever is popular even within Christian culture or carnal Christianity, Jesus did not die on the cross in order to have a kingdom made up of carnal Christians. He died on the cross To have a kingdom made up of people who are washed and sanctified and justified in anything in our life that is short of that or is unworthy of that sacrifice. Well, this morning we just want to confess it as sin, the privacy of our own heart between us and God, and then to repent of it as well so that this were represents our lives and so that the world can continue to see until our dying breath that person never became again what they once were. God must be real. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your clarity. No one says the things that you say. No one has the courage. No one has the wisdom. No one has the knowledge. And no one has the love. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you that you are the lover of our souls and that you loved our souls long before we ever loved them ourselves or valued them. And, Lord, I pray for each unsaved person that stands before you right now. And I pray that just the strength of your Holy Spirit that there would be a strong consciousness of the seriousness of sin, whatever anyone and everyone else is saying about it, and that they would recognize their need to be forgiven and to recognize the forgiveness that you have provided through your Son and to make that forgiveness and salvation theirs today. And, Lord, we pray as people who know you and, as lo- and love you, that you would receive the confession of our sin, that you would see our repentance, Lord. We throw off everything in our lives this morning that is unworthy of the sacrifice of our Savior to set us free. Thank you for the privilege of repentance, Lord. Give us the grace to live fully in your kingdom. Not one foot here and one foot there, Lord but fully in your kingdom for your glory, for our good for sure, but, Lord, also for the good of so many who are watching our lives in the hopes of seeing something real and something different. Make us that different thing, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.